happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 201 for December 9th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. Wes, how are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am a little tired, but glad to be here and seven days away from Christmas break and happy that apparently masks, social distancing, air filters and other kinds of like and washing your hands <laughs> uh, apparently, you know, works because we don't. I don't know if we have any teachers right now in, in our middle school um, who are out and we've been doing remarkably well being in school. So I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, where I also teach media literacy to fifth and sixth graders and introductory Spanish to fifth graders until January 8th, when I will be hanging up the sombrero and um, saying, you know, time for more instructional coaching. Well, excellent. Um, but tonight, we're not going to talk in Spanish. We're going to talk technology. Ole! And we have several topics for you at our link page on our website, www.edtechsr.com, where you can find all the links that we feature and many that we don't even get to on any given week. And tonight, we have several topics that we want to talk to you about, including some breaking news, a little bit about Apple, Microsoft, Google, YouTube, security and privacy. Um, we are going to more the final death of Flash tonight, perhaps the uh, perhaps and maybe uh, almost guaranteed the last time we will talk about it. And there is also some interesting ex exposés in the tech correction that Wes will want to talk about tonight. But before we get started, jagung, gung, 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 there is breaking news. The FTC announced today that it is going to sue Facebook. 48 attorney generals from across the United States are joining a lawsuit, including the FTC, that they want to break up Facebook because it has uh, uh, against what they perceive to be violations of, or I'm sorry, because of vi perceived violations of federal law, they want to break up Facebook because it illegally acquired its competitors uh, during its younger days. And they specifically mention Instagram and WhatsApp. App. And it's really interesting to me that this is happening now. And the, the article that I read was from The Verge, uh, today's edition of The Verge. But what's interesting to me is that Instagram has been uh, owned by Facebook for quite some time, as uh, is WhatsApp as well. And uh, it seems like that... Well, I, I guess it's been a long time coming to get to this point, and one has to determine if I think that if it's truly been anti-competitive, if other competitives to Facebook exist. And I would argue that they do. There are other competitives to Facebook that are thriving. Twitter is thriving. It didn't seem to be impacted by the mass gathering of, of, of individual networks. And startup networks like Parler are thriving in 2020 as well. But we've talked about the so-called tech correction a number of times on this podcast where uh, starting around 2015, Dr. Fryer and I estimated that there would be some scaling back of, of technology companies and also a grand reconsideration of the role technology plays in our lives. So let's start here tonight, Wes. Any thoughts about the FTC announcement today and what the viability is of kind of this anti-competitive, antitrust style of action that the FTC announced today? It's super interesting this is happening before we've had a presidential transition because generally I would think that antitrust is going to come under a Democratic administration and a Republican administration is going to continue the policies of the past, which tend to be very pro-merger, pro-business, pro, you know, get as big as you can. There's really no antitrust limits on you. Um, that article that you put in, um, they specifically say because the federal there, there was the, and that's amazing, right? For 47, 48 attorney states, attorney general to, to be in on a lawsuit. I don't, I mean, I am not a lawyer and I don't, 
I haven't done the research on this to know what the precedent is, but that's who knows if that is a, a precedent. Maybe they would have said it in the article if it was the first time for that level of of uh, you know, sign on. But the federal charge uh, or case actually goes even further, and it explicitly says that they want to roll back the clock and they want to break up Facebook. They want to tear Instagram off of, of Facebook and. Let's remember that damages come in all kinds of forms. And one of the things the article points out is damages to privacy because the founders of Instagram and I think WhatsApp as well have, uh, some of them have parted ways with Facebook. Some of them in some real vocal departures where they were angry at the ways in which the data was being mined and monetized by Facebook. And basically privacy has been thrown down the toilet. So I'm encouraged by this. I am, I'm surprised, but you know, what's happened with our um, now departing chief executive uh, in terms of his being upset and, and, and others as well, uh, you know, in having the perception that social media companies are biased against conservative voices, calling for limitations on Section 230 uh, protections for social media companies, um, trying to push for the social media uh, companies to be considered publishers, um, and, and, and to face, you know, some, some liability threat. Um, I, I do think that we need a tech correction. I was listening actually yesterday and today to the latest This Week in Tech podcast, which is always, you know, almost always, you know, pretty insightful. And they had some, I haven't finished it, but they have some pretty, in, um, interesting conversation about California and the way in which, I mean, I tend to think of California as, oh, they're leading this. But I mean, some of their their litigation has been rushed and not necessarily coming from who you might think it would come from in terms of of privacy advocates. And they they have this proposal in the latest um, you know election to try and make an amendment before this privacy protection law actually took effect. It's messy. And so I, uh, I agree with, with some of the, the folks on Twit who are saying we want to be, we want to be careful. We don't want to be hasty. Um, and, but we, we do, we are going to need, I, I, I this is my opinion. We're going to need some privacy protection, some additional written into, you know, legislation written into the legal code. But, um, I think I'm encouraged by this, but, you know, where this goes, the fact that there's so many states attorneys general signing on to it, it, this isn't just like, you know, President Trump's legal team, you know, is just on its own, you know, uh, formulating this. I mean, we've got a lot of folks that are upset and they have been upset for for a considerable amount of time. So um, I'm a beneficiary of Facebook. We talk about this on the show just about every time where we say, hey, in the, in the pandemic, isn't it fantastic to be able to connect in the ways that we can connect? Uh, it absolutely is. We, we lost someone this past weekend in our church family. Um, it's been very um, touching to, to hear on social media uh, the, the different remembrances that people have had. Uh, Middell Public Schools, which is by Tinker Air Force Base, just east of Oklahoma City, just lost a bus driver to COVID this last week. And there was a, a local news article that I read. And again, it was sharing how touching the the thank yous and the memories of the students who had, had ridden the bus with, with this woman who even through cancer treatments and all kinds of challenges, you know, continued for over 20 years to be a bus driver uh, in the, in the really the same neighborhood in the same area, same community. Social media is allowed for a lot of voices like that to be shared. So there's a lot of benefits, um, but I don't think we're going to have to just sort of throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater and say, Oh, well, you know, Global networking on a social media site is out now because, you know, we're, we're giving some more privacy rights. Um, I, I do want to see Facebook get, get taken down some notches. I have not fully formed my opinions in terms of surveillance capitalism, whether I think Shoshana Zuboff is, is convinced we need to upend that entire model. Uh, <coughs> and I'm not, I haven't read her book and I'm not completely on that page, but I certainly do believe that we need to deal with many of the unintended consequences, which are very destructive here. Um, and I'm surprised by this, especially, as I said, coming late in this administration, um, but having both the state level broad based consent, you know, broad based support, um, as well as a federal 
lawsuit that goes even further. And as the article points out, this follows in October what we talked about on the show, which was an FTC um, lawsuit against Google for monopolizing, you know, online advertising. So what's your take, Dr. Neifer? Well, I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure if breaking up fixes the problem, right? I mean, like, even if we can go back in time and, you know, I will say that I still remember when Facebook bought Instagram and it was for a billion dollars and there was so much like jaw dropping that a tech company like Instagram uh, uh, sold for a billion dollars. Like they just, it was billion. It's a billion. Holy dog. It's a billion. And now that, that, that's commonplace for companies with much less ultimate value go for well above and tens of billions, uh, sometimes. Well, Slack uh, just sold for 26 billion or something. Exactly. Right. right? Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and Slack, although it would, I would think it's if equal potential as, as Instagram was because of its pervasiveness in, in corporate culture, the bottom line is, is that, um, it was an enormously uh, important and 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 worthy buy for Facebook at the time. It was very smart for them to go in that direction. But severing them away, yes, it does mean that those two platforms um, won't feed into the same pot of money. But I'm not entirely sure if that fixes the problem because I think, as we've talked about, I don't really feel the the political problem quite as as acutely on Instagram as I do on Facebook. But the bottom line is is that it has been uh, 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 Facebook has been an enormous engine for disinformation. And I don't know how to rectify in my head how we judge whether or not a platform, social media platform is a uh, hotbed for disinformation without judging what disinformation is. I feel fairly confident that, and again, not a political show, but I do believe that 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 uh, 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 President-elect Biden won the election. And I don't disagree uh, with the notion that we shouldn't let people hide uh, uh, in dark alleys of Facebook and and uh, continue to stoke discontent uh, about the results of the election. And to be frank, if they'd gone in the other direction, I wouldn't want to be in the back alleys of Facebook either, stowing discontent about the results of the election either. But the bottom line is, is that um, that that still is a bit even though there are certainly pieces of information that we can decide are truth or not truth, that that is a bit in the, the, in the eye of the beholder. And that is, is troublesome for me because I just don't know where we draw those lines. Well, these, these lawsuits aren't based upon conservative bias or anti-conservative bias, you know, and they're, they're based on, on real issues. The, The privacy deal is a huge thing, right? The founders of these companies that, you know, were, were consumed by Facebook, uh, some of them have been pretty mad about the ways in which consumer data has been and privacy has been trampled and, and utilized. Um, a couple thoughts. Number one, I really think broadly as a society, make a political statement here. I think that we need to be recognizing the value of regulation to a greater degree, certainly than I think a lot of folks do in my home state of Oklahoma, where, you know, we're, we're kind of the, the rabid conservative uh, state here. And, we need to have limits on human behavior. You know, if, if you don't limit and restrict greedy folks, then they do things that really harm others in the environment and, and, you know, not good. You have some limits. And the second thing I would point out, and this kind of takes this article with an educational lens, as we often do on the show, what do we need to think about? It has some email quotes from Zuckerberg that came out this summer in some congressional testimony that is really pretty damning because he evidently within an hour or so after sending those said, well, I wasn't saying that we were, you know, trying to stop competition. That's what the email said. The email said, we're going to, you know, get these companies, buy them now because that's going to buy us time. And we're going to prevent other folks from being able to get their market scale and, and reach their size. And, and it's interesting, right? Because capitalism functions on competition. I mean, this is why you, you, you the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of products, um, you know, it's based on competition. But there's a point at which when you become big, you are not supposed to use your power to prevent anyone else from entering the marketplace or from competition taking place. And I think those quotations from Zuckerberg that came out in congressional testimony, like I said, last summer in the summer of 2019 are very damning. And so 
it was going to be very interesting how this comes out because this, this is not sounding at all like, you know, this was coming out of the Twitter stream of, of President Trump. I mean, I'm sure that his ideas and, and, and thoughts, um, have quite a bit to do with what the, the FTC and the Justice Department are doing at this late hour, um, you know, as, as they wait for the Biden administration to assume the reins of, of leadership and control in, in Washington, D.C. Um, but like I said, these issues are, are much bigger than that. They are real issues. And I, this is the tech correction. Folks, this is the tech correction. It's, it's, this isn't necessarily a Cambridge Analytica inspired tech correction, but in terms of tech companies not having limit, many, very many limitations and government saying, wait a minute, we're going to impose some limits on you. We're going to push back. We're not going to let you do whatever you want because there's been some bad things that have happened as a result of, of your behavior. Um, I think I'm positive about this overall. And hello, Peggy. Thanks for joining us. We're glad that you're here. Well, I, I want to mention one other thing that I think is a uh, uh, kind of connected to this, and then I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, although I noticed that our security privacy section is once again this week much larger than our other sections. But uh, Apple uh, released something interesting today that that really, really caught my eye. I'm not talking about those ridiculous $800 headphones. Um, uh, and for the record, you can buy their new headphones and, and a set of wheels um, for your Mac Pro, uh, for the same price as a high-end Dell desktop. But that, that's neither here nor there. Um, Apple announced something new today that, that's part of its app architecture. And it, it announced it first on its development blog, but, um, that they are going to start releasing, um, kind of like that there's nutritional facts on, you know, the back of your box of cornflakes. They're going to start putting a, a, a privacy statement, uh, on, on every app that's available. Uh, uh, for download in the Apple app, Apple app architecture in the App Store. So your your iPad apps, your iPhone apps, and then if you're using the newest version um, of uh, the the Mac platform with the N1 chip, you can also utilize these apps on on your Mac uh, uh, OS platform. And it goes through and tells you exactly. Um, what data um, it, it, that a, a particular app is collecting on you and what's not collecting on you and what's being tracked as you use the app. And it's interesting how this played out today because almost immediately um, there was some controversy about this and one particular app kind of pushed back or nudged back a little bit. And I want to say it was WhatsApp, which is obviously uh, uh, interesting in light of the, the earlier discussion today with, with the FTC. But in response to WhatsApp saying, that that Apple's apps, so the ones that are bundled with the devices and are also available for download in the App Store, um, are, also have potential privacy issues, Apple announced that it would apply the rules to itself as well, and that all the apps that come bundled would also have this privacy statement. And I think Apple has been the leader of, of this privacy discussion for some time. They honestly don't really need your data because they're you're willing if you're willing to buy into the Apple uh, architecture, you're already paying a premium premium price for that hardware and software. Um, so they, uh, you know, really, their business model doesn't rely nearly as much on, on, on data analytics and utilizing your data for things like advertising as other platforms like Google. But the bottom line is, is that they're going to empower consumers to say that starting today, if there's a new app in the app store or an update to an app in the app store, you have to disclose precisely how you're using uh, data and how you're tracking its users. And I do think that this is also part of the longer conversation that there are going to be some apps where you're going to be willing to, to, to trade your data, uh, 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 for various reasons. And, um, you know, a good example of this is that I could be talked into very easily. I think that, especially if I lived in a larger city, that, that selling my location data as part of a mapped app makes sense. If it's going to mean that long term, that, uh, 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 city planning is better because of roads and that that traffic data is, is utilized to help find alternative routes for me or let me know when traffic is significant or heavy. That's just an example, very, very top level example. But 
knowing that getting into that means I can make a decision as a consumer. And so, um, I guess as our resident Apple guy, what uh, Apple guy, Wes, although, uh, my MacBook is probably going to be here in two weeks. The bottom line is that, <laughs> you know, you are using this for your mobile devices. What's your reaction to this newest announcement from Apple? I think it's great. I think that we do need to have greater levels of transparency, uh, not only for consumers, but what this is going to do for journalists and for other watchdog groups that are, you know, possibly going to be reading these things, um, you know, in aggregate and, and in detail, you know, maybe to a greater extent than consumers will, you know, these things can, can be overwhelming. I mean, look at the iTunes agreement, right? It's 48 printed pages or something crazy and they can update it at any time and they do update it frequently. Um, but I think Part of where we want and need to go with respect to privacy specifically um, is definitely a greater level of transparency. And that not only means the kinds of things that are being collected about us or will be, but the things that have been collected. Now, those things are going to require probably some legislation for us as consumers to have the right to be able to see, hey, Facebook, what are all, you know, let me download my data file and oh, I don't know if I said this in the show a couple of weeks ago. There was a term that um, it's like hostile interoperability or something like that. It basically means that companies don't necessarily have to agree to it, but like being able to pick up your your toys and go elsewhere, being able to t- pick up your data, you know, from Facebook and then move into another platform um, with interoperability. It, that the the direction we need to go is is having greater levels of transparency and then greater levels of choice. Now, some folks have pointed out, does that mean you would say no if Facebook popped up and said, hey, in exchange for giving us all this data, we're going to go ahead and let you talk to grandma tonight or, you know, be able to see see updates from from your friends across the country and the world. Um, you know, people in general still probably like the agreement that they're making, but a lot of us as consumers are not fully aware of the trade-offs and the ways in which these, um, you know, pieces of data are being utilized about us. So I applaud Apple. I think they're moving in the right direction. And I think this also is an example on the tech correction topic of where companies are going to be responding and trying to do enough to stave off regulators and be able to say, hey, look, look what we're doing. We're doing these things. And you're right. Apple is far less of a surveillance capitalism company than Amazon, um, Google, Facebook, but they do have a large services industry. I think they're really capitalizing and will continue to capitalize on that privacy piece because that is a differentiator and they do have a huge amount of revenue from hardware. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think it's positive and I'm glad to see them leading it. And Apple has always led in a lot of different ways, right? They took out the floppy disk before anybody and CD-ROM and, you know, they caused a lot of hand wringing. Yeah. And and killed flash. Well, Steve jobs did, right. As we're going to talk about in the show. I mean, he wanted to, and there were really good geeky reasons and security reasons for, why that was beneficial. So, you know, if, if he can reach out from, from the, the other side, he's, he's dancing a dance right now as flash is, uh, is dying a, a long prolonged death. Absolutely. Okay. Where to next, sir? Well, let's talk about flash. Why don't we do that? Are that's going to impact you? I would think in the digital Academy with respect to digital manipulatives and curriculum. Is that sure. true? Absolutely. Uh, today, uh, Adobe, released its last update to Flash ever. And as we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast, uh, announced, I think it was three years ago in 2017, Adobe announced it would uh, kill off Flash for good on uh, the last day of 2020. And on January 1, 2021, supposedly the way this is going to work, uh, from my understanding, is that uh, it will just stop working completely in, 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 in the Chrome browser and Chrome OS because they have a specialized version of Flash that they download particularly for that. And that it's, it's my understanding is that it's time bomb. So, you know, uh, midnight on, on December 31st, 2020, um, actually I should say midnight at, uh, or 1201 on, on January 1st, uh, 2021, then you can't even turn it on anymore, that it will just cease to exist, uh, in that version. But, um, 
the my also understanding is that that it just stops working uh that that it is hooked to time even with uh, when you download it to your desktop or laptop computer and um you know obviously it, it's it's been around 25 years uh it was the uh, in my mind, the uh, uh, a platform that helped usher in media-based websites, uh, every website from BuzzFeed to YouTube utilized Flash at one point in order to help deliver media. It was a critical technology in the delivery of most video-based sites early on in, in their um, evolution in architecture. And certainly uh, it, it is something that, that will always go down in, in kind of the pantheon of internet history as an extremely important technology. But but as Wes uh, says very correctly, there have been a lot of security issues with Flash. Um, uh, it, it, it's wonky. It is extremely uh, CPU intensive, intensive in a lot of, of implementations of the technology. And famously, and I think this was in, I guess, in like 2010, um, uh, uh, there was a, a, a famous letter released from Steve Jobs that said that we, we have to get rid of Flash. And there's a reason why we won't uh, support it on iPads. And it's because of its insecurity and because it is too intensive to run on mobile processors and it sucks too much battery life. And so we will not allow Flash um, natively on iPads. And that, like the floppy disk, uh, Apple getting rid of the floppy disk was the beginning of the end of, of that particular technology. So I want to make one note. Wes, you ask about uh, digital manipulatives and um, uh, other media objects in my context of delivering distance learning in Montana. Yeah, it's been a big deal. And we've been working on this for three years. Um, we, in fact, I literally just put out my last notice to teachers today to say that we've stopped uh, supporting Flash as of August 1st, uh, 2020. And so, uh, we don't, uh, we don't require schools to have, uh, uh, the Flash plugin installed on, on browsers or have it turned on on Chrome. Uh, and yet we still will run into, it's been about every week and a half that we'll still run into, even though we've been working on this for three years, something in a digital object that no longer uh, works with Flash turned off. Uh, the latest was we had a couple of, um, assessments in a German class that involved some uh, language clips that students were to listen to and, and translate, and they were in an embedded Flash player that uh, we noticed just recently, and so we've had to go in and and adapt those and, and, and re-record those pieces. And, um, you know, I will say that um, HTML5 is better, um, although it's taken a while to get to a point where HTML5 HTML5 programmers and developers have developed objects that really stood up to the complexity that Flash could really uh, uh, produce, especially in the last years of its existence. But uh, I'm sad to see it go away. Rest in peace, Flash. Yeah, it's just this is a sign of the times of technologies. You know, the the kinds of movies that were taken on cameras during the Apollo and and different you know NASA space programs have become antiquated. Um, I actually need to find a reel to reel tape player. There's a there's a store in Oklahoma City that I think might possibly have one. I have a a, a, a audio letter from my my dad's mom that she had sent in about 1972 and you know, I have nothing that will play it. I mean, our wedding videos on VHS, I don't think we've ever converted it to DVD. Uh, I would, you know, this Thanksgiving holiday, I was taking some stuff off of some old CDs that I pulled out of garage boxes and we've got an old Mac G3 Yosemite, you know, blue and white tower, um, that has a ton of video at back in the day. This is like early two thousands. You didn't export at 720p. Number one, it was going to take forever. Number two, nobody could, could freaking download that. You had to, you know, export things really small. And, and at that time, I was like, well, I'm going to save stuff in original format because someday I may want to export it. And anyway, this is just a sign of the times with media, but it's, it's a very relevant thing to, to talk, you know, up to, to students, to, 
parents, to everybody about. Um, because if you have media that you care about, you, and I'm, and I'm thinking now more personally, you know, about, about photos, about videos. I mean, if it's on a zip drive, you know, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> where are you going to put these things? How are you going to save them? You know, my friend Bob Sprankle, um, passed away a few years ago and, <laughs> Actually, I hope, and I've got to finish this, this, I've, I've been paying for two hosting services. I'm so embarrassed to say for, for how long. And part of it is because there was some, there were some files and a lot of stuff that, that he had shared. And, you know, if you don't renew your domain names and you've got stuff on domains that you host, uh, that stuff goes away. Hosting companies don't host it forever. Maybe the Internet Archive has backed some of it up, but it's, um, the, the, uh, ethereal maybe nature of um of digital content um you know people will say hey it's on the internet it's there forever well maybe some things are but there's all there's a lot of things that that may not live forever and especially if it's stuff that we care about as a family you know where are you saving it where are you making sure it's archived and like everything else you probably need to back it up multiple places and that is going to be an enduring challenge because formats and things like that are going to continue to change. So I think we'll have some teachers at school impacted. Um, I was talking, my daughter had to enable flash this semester for a textbook website that her French teacher was, you know, had been using for years and was still using. And honestly, I need to remind him and say, Hey, don't forget, this is going to break at the end of the month. Uh, I don't know if he knows that. So there's going to be some, some surprises that happen like that for people that just may not have ever considered the fact that, ah, wow, this, is going to die. And I would make one other note. Uh, if for some reason you have some flash something, 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 you absolutely 100% need to work, there are solutions to this that don't involve installing what is uh, a generally considered to be a very insecure pl- uh, 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 flash plugin from Adobe, uh, especially w- once they stop maintaining it, right? Like that, that's going to be kind of a nightmare. It's called Ruffle. Um, it is an emulator of uh, Flash players that uh, is open source, and I'll put the link in, in our show notes, but I know that a lot of the Flash game sites uh, uh, are trying to encourage people to install Ruffle. It's a desktop app, and then you can also get a Chrome and Firefox extension, although it, it's open source, so that that's a little more trustworthy than a random website to download from. Neither of them are in the extension stores of Firefox or or Chrome, so that that's a little more sketchy for me just because uh, you know getting community reviews back and um, you know what other experiences are would help me but uh, it's not dead 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 and in part like what would 13 year olds do on a, a, a web browser left to their own devices if they didn't have flash games to distract them so uh, you know ruffle lives so awesome okay where to next Oh, gosh. Well, let's talk about something that nobody really wants to talk about, but it's important. I put it under Tech Correction Section 230. There was an op-ed in the New York Times on December 4th called The Children of Pornhub. And this article um, by Nicholas Kristof actually already generated some positive response. But um, the the basis of it is that uh, there are horrible, you know, photos of underage, mostly girls, um, that are on Pornhub, which is a company that's based out of Canada. And the, the site, you know, at the time this editorial was published on December 4th, <clears throat> allowed anonymous uploads and really didn't have many restrictions. And section 230, which we've talked about before, uh, in the United States, um, acts as a shield to protect many companies from liability to include Pornhub. Um, The Verge reported on, um, December 8th, that Pornhub is now limiting uploads and disabling downloads after this New York Times expose. And I think this is a great example of why journalism is so important. We need quality journalism. We need journalists who are going to dig into things that, you know, might not be happy and might not be something that you're really, um, you know, ready to talk, talk and share with everybody else. But like, hey, if it's if it's uh muckraking of, of things that are happening, you know, in, in business or in society uh, and somebody needs to take action to try to stop it. Um, journalism plays a huge role in that. So there's a little plug for the fourth estate and, and, and for journalists and, and for this op-ed. But I think that, you know, again, this touches back on what we were talking about earlier with respect to Facebook and the breakup and these, these lawsuits. Um, 
Section 230, which has provided pretty unlimited liability protection for platforms up to this point, um, is really under fire for a lot of different reasons. And it it seems nonsensical that, and this is where sometimes you have an analog of like in the face-to-face world, this is what we do and this is how we'd handle it. In the digital world, you know, oh, you know, sometimes in school when we deal with laptops and technology, we, we can think about that. Like, well, how did you handle this before, you know, kids had laptops? Well, this is what we did. Um, there are cases here where digital is treated so much differently and it really can seem nonsensical. So yay for New York Times, yay for this editorial in terms of already getting a response. And I think this is another sign of an area in which we need to have a, a pushback. I think it was actually a year ago because there, there was a series the New York Times did in December and it didn't get a, a maybe as much uh, headline play and just attention as it needed to, but it was a series of like three or four articles that basically were just showing how horrific the darkness on the internet is and how paltry the funding had been up to that point in the United States federal government specifically to try and address it. It's just completely overwhelming. So glad to see this article and hope that more will be done to try and address these issues because there, you know, there's a lot of things we can disagree about, but the kinds of things that they're talking about here, um, you know, unless you are an absolutely unrepentant Internet troll, um, you're going to be able to agree that, that these things should be stopped. Absolutely. And also give the, uh, you know, initial shout out to the fact that this is investigative journalism. Right. And this is part of when we talk about a broad tech correction, we need people digging in on on these websites. And I don't I mean, I um, I I think I've talked about in the past that that part of of the way that I've been trying to be better about media is the standpoint of as I pay for journalism um, when I'm utilizing it. And so um, that doesn't mean I don't go to a free site or or take advantage of, you know, two or three articles a month on X, Y, and Z site, but I have subscriptions now to, I think, four publications that are part of my daily news diet that I think it's it's really important to do that. And one of the reasons why the New York Times is able to do uh, uh, investigative journalism and, and uh, you know, dig into these stories, which oftentimes take months or years to to complete. And in this particular case, it is a, a prominent name at the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof, that wrote this article, um, is because of, of paid-for journalism that uh, it's an important component of of what we do. So um, good article to highlight and an interesting story to follow. Why don't we jump into some of our security articles? We've got a lot there um, under under security and privacy. Um, I'll do this first one. This is Ars Technica from December 8th. Premier security firm FireEye says it was breached by nation state hackers. And if you are not familiar with the name FireEye, um, that is one absolute top tier commercial companies. That is a white hat hacking and protection company. And normally, I mean, we don't hear about a lot of breaches. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the security and cyber cybersecurity world that we don't hear about. Um, I'm, you know, the FBI, I think, came out and, and was recognizing FireEye for you know, it, you know, sharing this and, and talking about this, but they, um, have said in clear terms that given the sophistication of these attacks, uh, this was a nation state. So that would basically probably mean either Russia or China. And as I think a homeland security or other kind of cybersecurity official quoted in the article says, it points out that everybody's vulnerable. <clears throat> it really doesn't matter, um, uh, if somebody has enough resources, they can penetrate your defenses and they can, you know, get inside and, and be able to, to take information. And so, um, that also make, reminds me of, of some conversations from this twit podcast that I'm, I've been listening to. Huh, we got to think about all the stuff that we do where we don't want to put online and where we put those things, you know, and is it encrypted? I mean, these are things that, yeah, the general public just, I mean, people send text messages and yeah, why I'm not doing anything wrong or illegal. Why, you know, why should I care? Um, but the ability and potential for folks to gain vast, incredible, you know, access to troves of information, 
um, today and in class, actually, the last two days, I've taught what might be the most important lesson I share with fifth and sixth graders, and that is how to have a secure password and how to help protect their own um, digital identity and those of their families and, you know, and getting them to reset the password they've had since they started school, uh, which is a very insecure password. And I had, you know, I had students, this is going to be hard as a guess it is. Uh, but this is part of what we have to do, you know, looking at, uh, have I been pwned and, and seeing, Oh, wow, look at all these passwords that I used to use that are now on the dark web that anybody, you know, can have access to. So I think that was a pretty, pretty sobering article and, Again, these kinds of things are just sort of like, oh, yeah, another hack, another day. But like, what are you doing to deal with this? Follow the Jason Neifer model, ladies and gentlemen. Holiday time should mean a lot of things. And one of them should be time to audit your accounts. So I am saying this because I am going to be doing more of this. I have not comprehensively you know, changed every single duplicated password or probably even password that has been compromised at some time. I have websites that are out there that, that haven't been changed and the tools are there. So what are we waiting for? Let's all, you know, make this a more secure holiday time. Yep. Slash Absolutely. tag, end of rant. um i would say so uh related article uh to that discussion and actually i get this question relatively frequently so uh and this is carried over from a couple of weeks ago uh, is windows defender good enough to protect your pc by itself and this is a good uh, pc magazine article i will kind of uh give you the too long didn't read summary which is it's probably fine um, uh, for most users, right? Uh, you can do better than Windows Defender security, but it's probably good enough for most of what folks do, and they, they make some recommendations there. But I would say the reason why I like this article in context of what you just mentioned, Wes, is the fact that I do think that obviously malware is a really terrible thing, but malware can't save you. I'm sorry, uh, antivirus software, anti-malware software can't save you from yourself. And if you introduce threats in, into your cybersecurity life, um, there's really not a whole lot that third-party security software can do for you. So utilizing good software like a password manager, I will note something that I did. Uh, I was actually wildly uh, uh, cautious during uh, uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday uh, when it comes to buying stuff. Um, uh, e- that uh, Not that I go on a spree necessarily, but there's usually something something that tempts me um, uh, on one of those two days. Um, I did do some minor stuff. Uh, um, I did I did get some really beautiful Anchor USB-C cables um, that uh, uh, were on super discount from Amazon. But um, one thing I did do was I bought the... Um, uh, uh, the commercial version of LastPass, which is my preferred security manager. And I paid for that. I think I paid $24 for a year, which is, I, I want to say it's 50% off. Even at $50, it would be worth it to me from the standpoint of it's been so valuable to me. But, you know, I, I, you know, I would say that, that don't, you have to be diligent about things and continue to you know, make sure you're using unique passwords for every website and use the password manager and do all the things that are part of this process. And I still run into um, an occasional account that I haven't been in in a long time and I have a reason to go back in there and I figure out that the password I'm using for that is a long compromised password. And in a couple of cases, I've really lucked out that it wasn't a, a that 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 particular website hadn't been tried by folks utilizing these databases. So absolutely, uh, you know, uh, uh, password, uh, or I'm sorry, antivirus software is important, but not as important, I think, as the actions you take as an end user. And Peggy in our chat room has a question, which is wonderful, and we'll respond to it. She asks, when you say the tools are out there for changing passwords, what tools are you referring to? So it depends on what you're using, but the Chrome browser specifically now has a feature and sometimes it'll just pop up even when you're using a password and say, hey, would you want to do the password audit? Go into the security features and maybe Jason can even tell specifically uh, where you go. But it is if you're saving your passwords, <clears throat> it cross index. Well, number one, it, it can identify if you have a duplicated password and identify which sites those are so you can change those. But it can also tell you about compromised passwords. This is called different things in different 
uh, password managers, but both LastPass and 1Password, which I'm most familiar with, have this. I think it's called Watchtower in 1Password. And so it takes the database of known breaches, which is what that website um, Have I Been Pwned does. When you put your email in, and I'll drop that into the chat, you know, it tells you, hey, you, you know, this, this email address was involved in these security breaches. And this was the kind of information that was taken in that breach, whether it was the actual password, other things, sometimes like birthday, could even be social security number, uh, password hints, a lot of things like that. So um, those tools are going to basically help you. And, and I'll just throw that to you, Jason. Uh, I'm guessing as you have done your audits of passwords, have you relied upon those kinds of tools from LastPass or other tools to help you? Or how, how did you make sure you were going through all your passwords and, and cleaning up the ones that needed to be changed? Um, I have two strategies. The first one is I use, I've used the Google password checkup. Uh, so if you go to passwords.google.com, assuming you're a Google user, it will do an audit of your passwords. It won't automate changing them, unfortunately, but it will, um, uh, uh, it will create an opportunity for you um, uh, to see which which uh, accounts uh, could potentially be compromised or have already been compromised. And I will say that um, uh, uh, it, it's been a, a, a big value to me to um, uh, uh, to to see that list, right? In a lot of cases, it saved passwords for sites that I had been on for some time, and I actually went in and uh, uh, deleted that account. Um, but, you know, I would also say, too, keep an eye on your email. And this is something I hadn't really thought about until very recently, but I love the Gmail feature that that tries to uh, uh, designate different kinds of emails through through tabs uh, and columns. So I have a primary, a social, promotions, updates, and forums. That's it's it's very useful to me because the email I get in my primary is actually very well honed to stuff that I know I want to pay attention to. But I've also go in and take a look pretty frequently at updates. Um in part because sometimes I see that um uh, that a website that I hadn't been in a long time said, you know, you you recently logged into this website. Was this you? And twice in the last four weeks, I noticed that um, uh, that it was a website that I hadn't logged into that I had an account at. And when I went in there, it was a password that I know that had been in one of these compromised databases. And so that's the other strategy I use is to keep an eye on email to see if there's any um uh, any logins that have happened that, you know, based on that, and probably the most famous one for me, I think I've mentioned this, both my Netflix account and also my Spotify account had a, a password that was in a compromised database before I was using unique passwords. That's what started me down this road was that I had seen... um uh, that I had seen uh, these accounts being accessed. Uh, in both cases, it was outside the country, which was a, a big indicator to me too. And so I needed to go in and change those passwords. Very good. What else under the security uh, umbrella? I, I, I guess I'll do the next one. Um, huh, wow. I was just looking at the title of that one on multi-factor. Um, here's a hopeful one. Ars Technica, December 8th. Cloudflare, Apple, and others back a new way to make the internet more private. Um, and so here's a geeky opportunity for us to talk about DNS. I'll do another podcast shout out for security now because I probably learned more about how TCP IP and packet transmission work, you know, listening to uh, Steve Gibson on that show, you know, in some of the early, early years of it. Um, DNS is an essential part of the internet we have today. Every single device that connects to the internet and uses the World Wide Web has to have a an index, a directory that it will take to have a word like Facebook and then figure out what server number, what IP address does it need to direct uh, things to. It's a big vulnerability be, uh, for several reasons. Um, DNS servers can be overwhelmed. Uh, in fact, if you still use the, the standard DNS settings that your service provider um, provides, um, this is a way you might be able to actually speed up your Internet access at home just for free by putting in Google's 8.8.8.8 or some other um, top tier service provider um, uh, DNS addresses. Um, but from a privacy standpoint, one of the things that is potentially problematic is that when you are using DNS as it's been constructed up to this point, um, whoever is running that DNS, for instance, your service provider, if you haven't changed it 
as a default and you can change it on your router. So you can make all the devices in your home, you know, not go to Cox or, or AT&T or whatever your provider is. You can, you can change it for everything and you can individually change it on devices as well. Most, most devices you can, um, they can collect all that data so they can find out, Hey, what's a comprehensive list of, you know, all of the, the websites that have been requested, um, unless you're using a VPN or a Tor browser or something else, uh, they're going to be able to have that. So, uh, the article is saying that Apple and some other partners, Cloudflare, um, are coming up with a very interesting way to address this. There have been some other proposals <clears throat> of changing DNS, but they're talking about, uh, they have a little graph in the article setting up, um, proxies and the, and, uh, essentially uh, a way that, that the information flow isn't, isn't fully both ways. So your provider for DNS is not going to be able to have this log. It's a little bit like metadata, right? Metadata for phone calls is like, all the dates and times and the phone numbers that you called, uh, which can be very informative. Um, law enforcement uses that all the time um, with this new proposed uh, upgraded DNS. Um, the service providers wouldn't be able to do that. So I think that's positive, not only from a security standpoint, because DNS is a, a vulnerable area in which Internet hackers at times, you know, have targeted DNS servers and trying to, to take down significant parts of the internet. Uh, it's also good from a privacy standpoint. So Jason, what is your preferred DNS provider? Do you put in a custom DNS at home or at work? Um, I Google DNS and then there's another one. It's, uh, it's 8.8.8.8. And no, that's Google. That's, maybe that's it's Google. nine. Maybe it's 9.9. There's another one. Maybe it's one. There's all another the ones, one. All the ones are, yeah, that's another one too. Yeah. That there's a privacy based one that I've done a couple of times too. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, and, and I do use, um, uh, I do use the Google Wi-Fi router at home. Although you totally reminded me of something, Wes, I want to mention just because we've talked about the Google Wi-Fi router so much here. And, and, and since I know that, that you've used them at home too, that an interesting story about Google Wi-Fi routers. So I've had a really rough couple of weeks, um, uh, bandwidth wise in my home. Um, and you know, we, we have a setup that we've worked on over time and both my wife and I noticed that our plethora of Zoom calls are, um, um, uh, uh, have not been super great. And in fact, have been getting worse. And, uh, it was so bad last week that at one point I actually jumped on, um, my phone as a mobile, uh, Wi-Fi hotspot. And so I went in the other day, uh, kind of annoyed and noticed that there was an update available, um, for my Google Wi-Fi system. And as it turns out, those, uh, there was four updates available and it had installed them automatically going back to August. And I thought that all happened automatically, but you may want to check out if you are a Google Wi-Fi user, especially if, um, you did it based on, on Wes and I's recommendation that you do so, go and check to see if there are updates for that. Because as it turns out, um, we, or it turns out that resolved a lot of my, um, um, a lot of my, uh, issues, uh, regarding, um, my Wi-Fi and, and how it was handling, um, uh, and how it was handling, um, um, uh, video calls. Okay. Excellent. And then one other quick security article that, that I would also mention, uh, this week is, um, um, chances are you have a a smart speaker in your house. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a smart speaker in your house. We've talked about the privacy problems with smart uh, technology like that in the past, but there's a really excellent um, um, article from Recode today that talks about the kinds of actions you should consider taking if you have a smart speaker in your house and you don't want to sacrifice your privacy. And uh, it's not a a foolproof method. And, you know, you are introducing a, a, an open microphone into your, um, um, and there's my cat, uh, an open microphone into your home. Um, and you have to have some trust for the company that you're working with. But the bottom line is that there we go. Lily, the cat, ladies and gentlemen. And, um, if you are, uh, if you're getting a smart speaker for the first time, or if you're putting one in a kid's room or you're doing something along those lines, that recode article was pretty comprehensive and gives you some indicators of, um, you know, the kind of stuff that you can do to be more security and privacy minded, uh, with smart technology in your home. There's another article and I, maybe I had, I might've put this one in a, uh, a while back. Um, 
it's actually from Forbes on November 14th, so it's a while. Your password isn't safe. Neither is typical multi-factor authentication. Microsoft warns. Look, using any kind of two-factor authentication is better than none. Uh, and we've been at a point where so few people have used it that using anything in, to include the, le- the least secure way, which is uh, SMS or text message uh, two-factor, it's better than nothing. Um, but we're at a point where, especially if, and I'm, I don't think there's probably any high-level government officials who are listening to our show, uh, but if you would be a person that could be or is being targeted, hey, if you're an election official in uh, the state of, uh, you know, Georgia, for instance, it's crazy the stuff that's been going on. Um, but, but actually this is real. This has happened. Um, you might want to consider, you know, having a more secure format for your two factor authentication, meaning using an app. Um, I like to use, I use the, the app Authy, A-U-T-H-Y. Uh, Jason, you can have it on your Apple Watch when you get that Apple Watch. It's really cool. That's, the way that I, when I'm, I, there's only been a few times when I've needed it that I've been uh, outside of, uh, of. Actually, this happened when uh, a couple of spring breaks ago. We were in California at a location that didn't have cell service, but they had internet, and my GoDaddy account was SMS only, and so I couldn't get that text message to log into my GoDaddy account. Like I really needed to do that when I was on vacation. Actually, I, I did. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, the, there's a, there's a sign of a geek, but. Um, Anyway, be aware that two factor is, is really important and some, any kind of two factor is better than none, but some two factors is better than others. So have you abandoned SMS two factor, Jason, in lieu of, of apps and Google authenticator kind of stuff or where are you with that? Not completely. I'm close. Um, and one of the things that actually pushed me over the edge was that, uh, one of the two factor text message providers, in my understanding, I've only done a little bit of research in this, is that there's not a ton of software suites. These would all be in the background. So you wouldn't know, even know the names of the people that do it. But some of the software or one of the software suites, um, wasn't delivering to my phone for whatever reason. And, um, and, and, and it was a, with another vendor that I was trying to get into an account that I had two factor in and it had been a long time since I, since I had logged into that account. So it was asking me to, 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 to re, um, uh, re up my identification, which is, you know, exactly what I wanted to do. Right. And as it turns out, um, I was not receiving text messages. And so it took me about a week to get back into that account. I had to, uh, fax them a picture uh, of my photo ID and provide them information and they kept apologizing said no this is exactly I, mean, I I wish that this thing worked better with my cell phone but you're doing exactly what I, I'm asking you to do so thank you for doing that um, you know and and uh, the the tech people I talked to were actually quite you know quite satisfied with that answer because I think other people have turned on two factor that where it stopped working were less uh, 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 less accepting of those answers but then I started moving towards my preferred app is Authy so the Google Authenticator is good Authy is good Microsoft has a pretty solid um, uh, authenticator app as well, although it works mostly with Microsoft stuff. And when I signed into Microsoft, uh, uh, like Windows for the first time on a new machine, I don't even have to type a password. I just type my username and password and go into the app and clear that. And it just sets up my account automatically that way. So very, and, and it forces me because I have, um, biometrics turned on on my phone for that particular app. It forces me to authenticate with my thumbprint. That's pretty cool. Holy smokes. It's almost the top of the hour. Uh, the, um, <laughs> is that wrong? Is my clock messed up? Nope. Um, some to some password managers will do this as well. Uh, my wife, I wanted to help her and did help her turn two factor on for her Twitter account. Um, of course she's got it on email and other things too, <clears throat> but we ended up using, uh, one password and it has that ability, um, with like a QR code, you know, to be able to generate a random code. And you need to pull that thing out when you're going to be logging in on a new device. And then periodically, you know, some websites are going to time out after 30 or 60 days or something like that. And you're going to have to provide another number. But all of those things are good and important. And again, I, I encourage folks, let, let's use the holidays for many things, but one of them could be to be just a little bit safer. So consider some of these suggestions and, and let us know if you end up doing any of these or you have better suggestions or other ideas of how you're navigating this. Because like I said, teaching fifth and sixth graders today, um, I, I really do hope that they, they talk with their parents about these things because, you know, who's who's going to be 
the person to have that security conversation. You, you want to have it. Uh, other people should want to have it before it's, you know, they've, they've had a hack, you know, they've had an yeah. identity hack. Um, and here I'll drop this in the show notes. There's the link. Have I been pwned? I'm sure we've mentioned that before, but there's a Microsoft white hat hacker who maintains that. And it's not comprehensive of everything that's on the dark web, but there's enough there that if you have an email address that you've had for a while, it's probably been in some breaches and it's a great way to personalize the importance and need for this. Um, and yeah, probably nothing has gotten my kids all agitated and just kind of fired up as that did today. Cause they were putting their parents email address. Oh my gosh, mom's email has been hacked. It's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. These are the ways that, you know, we make sure we're not using those passwords anymore. I want you to talk to mom and hopefully someone will. Well, Wes, uh, we're at the top of the hour. That seemed to happen a little faster than 60 minutes. Uh, why don't you share your Geek of the Week with us? Okay. My Geek of the Week is a blog post. Oh, my gosh. I, did, I wrote zero in the month of, of uh, November, I think, and so I put a post up this week. Um, but Monday I had a chance to be a facilitator, and Peggy actually joined with the uh, Digital Media Club that the it's called DigiURI for the University of Rhode Island, but it's the uh, media, the digital, the Summer Institute on Digital Literacy. Uh, and they have a week, a monthly club that meets the first Monday of the month. And so um, I was able to host the conversation, which included folks from literally around the world. We had folks from India, from Paris, France, um, a number, of, of course, from the United States. And so we talked about a fantastic TED Radio Hour show that I might, I think, Maybe we even mentioned it, Jason. That's how I heard about it. Uh, or maybe not. We talked about it on the show, but it was from March 2020 and they re-aired it, uh, in the last couple months, but it's called IRL online for in real life online. And it features seven different folks who've spoken from the TED stage, uh, Claire Wardle, Zainab Tufeki, Edward Snowden, uh, Marguerite Vestiger and Adam Alter. And it's just, it's an hour long. Um, the episode itself is fantastic. And I think our conversation was was good as well. And uh, uh, I'll put a link into the media club because it's free and it's wonderful. And if you're at all passionate about media literacy, it's a great group to be involved with. So what do you have tonight, Jason? I want to share a website that I've actually used a a half dozen times in the last couple of months. Um, So I have not... Uh, uh, done what I typically, I tend, I would say, you know, two, three regional conferences, one or two national conferences a year is, is the extent of my conference travel. I present almost all of them because that's in a lot of ways, some ways I pay to go to those conferences is in that way. But, um, I've been doing a lot more videos to submit to conferences as well, including, um, uh, uh several videos I submitted for uh, statewide, uh, 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 opportunities earlier this year. And there is a really great resource for royalty free open source music. Uh, Kevin McLeod is the is the name of the composer um, and Incompetech is the, the, the website, but he has, I think it's hundreds of really great uh, thematic uh, 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 downloadable MP3 themes that you can utilize. It's all it's it's all Creative Commons license so all you need to do is is, is say that he's the composer of the music and, and you've met the, the terms of the license. Um, and the only reason why that I, 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 I remembered it recently again, other than I've used it in, you know, off and on over the years is that he's a pretty popular guy on TikTok. A lot of his uh, themes end up getting used as background music for TikTok. And I've been kind of, uh, for better or for worse, uh, util- or I've been pretty deep in TikTok culture <laughs> the last uh, uh, three or four weeks or so. And, and I have to say it is a touch addicting, but great website, excellent stuff, uh, really great uh, uh, themes that I think are super useful. Um, uh, uh, that I think you would like. So incompetech.com is the website. And let me throw in, uh, two more quick, quick things. I don't know if it's a complete new, but he has another website called film music. And I kind of think incompetech might not be as under as development as this film music site is. It's, uh, incompetech.filmmusic.io. So I just dropped that in. And uh, yeah, I use that for, you know, brisket, you know, time-lapse videos for YouTube, brisket, brisket cutting and other things. Um, and then really fast, I, I forgot I had a second one, uh, smart plugs. I just installed a smart plug on our Christmas tree. It's lovely to have the Christmas tree come on and off by itself. And uh, I dropped a link in there to my favorite um, smart plug um, choice on Amazon. It is a GoSund uh, mini Wi-Fi outlet. It's actually a four-pack um, that's 30 bucks. So that's a little bit better than you can get for just buying one at a time, but works great with the, uh, Amazon 
Echo and the Google Home, which is the one that we use, uh, really quick to set up and just becomes a device in your your arsenal. And you, too, can have 30-plus devices on your Wi-Fi network if you start to buy plugs like this and get different things in your home turning on with the command of your voice. It's so cool. Live in the Star Trek future today. Google Home and the Wi-Fi plugs from GoSund. Great. Thanks, Wes. Well, where can people find, <laughs> where can people find you? A completely the- <laughs> unsponsored uh, endorsement. Um, I am although w- although w- we're open to sponsorship. Go. That's right. Well, maybe we need to. Maybe that'll be our new, our new leaf for 2021. W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org, mdtech.cassidy.org for my media and liter- media literacy curriculum. How about you, Jason? You can find me at uh, Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. And hey, pretty quick, uh, we, we're going to announce a date, I think, later this week for NCC 2021, which will be uh, online this year. A lot of work happening um, with that crew to try to put out a great technology conference. And because it's going to be nationwide, and I'll also tell you right now that it's going to be an inexpensive conference as well, that we want to get a nationwide audience, uh, well, really an international audience, and are pricing it to move. So keep an eye on www.ncce.org. But this is not about our social media handles. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday nights at 9, no, no. Not for Central United. Time, yeah, okay, for me, yeah, nine PM Central Time. I forget you're 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 a you're a night owl on this podcast. I am a bit earlier at eight PM Mountain Time, and somewhere in the middle of the night UTC. We'd love if you join us live. Check out we we put links up on Twitter at EdTechSR. Um, uh, you can join um our chat room where our our uh, Peggy, our chat room moderator, uh, is always there to say hello uh to guests and also to the the host as well. But if hey, if you can't do that check us out wherever finer podcasts are aggregated there's not a podcast app where i've not seen us available you can also ask your smart speaker to play uh the edtech situation room go to our website edtechsr.com download teeny tiny mp3 versions or you can find us on facebook or youtube in any case we'd love to see you next time Keep an eye on um, the podcast. I think next week we'll probably end up putting out some last-minute gift ideas if you're looking for perhaps some geeky gifts. We'll talk about that next week. And otherwise, we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Stay safe. Stay savvy. Good night. Good night, everybody.